0: America, it is the best place to go to seek opportunity.
1: Packed a couple of bags, came to Austin. Within two weeks, had fallen in love with the place. I mean,
0: you're listening to Move Your Business to the United States with me, your host, Kevin Turner.
1: Within two weeks, I'd been offered a job. Funnily enough, on one of the local TV stations to do a, you know, you know, a little bit of. Order,
0: order in court. The United States is notorious for its litigious nature. From Europe, at times, it seems that everyone is suing everyone else. Or so it seems. Well, today, Sebastian is taking me to meet a Texan lawyer, Joe Fulwiler. Take a listen to what I found out when Joe spoke to us about the reality and the myth behind life as a U.S. lawyer.
2: da!
0: So today on Move Your Business to the United States, we are in a law firm here in Round Rock, Texas, meeting Joe Fulweiler. Joe, welcome to Move Your Business to the United States. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Joe, uh, we deal with European entrepreneurs. Uh, Sebastian advises them on their moves from uh, successful startups and successful ventures in Europe to operating in the United States. Looking across the Atlantic, it's a huge leap with all sorts of uh, pitfalls and all sorts of worries and all sorts of possibilities as well. What does a European entrepreneur need from an American lawyer in terms of that transition phase, Joseph, in your experience?
1: The first thing that they typically need is to create some sort of business entity. It could be a corporation. It could be an LLC, which stands for Limited Liability Company some sort of entity to hold the assets of their business and to give them some limited liability for their personal assets from any liabilities that arise in the business. Usually the second question they have is around accounting, bookkeeping, and taxes, payroll taxes. Number three is usually contracts with their customers or with their employees. So those are usually the first 3 things that I end up consulting on.
0: Sebastian, in your experience uh, starting companies in the United States, ha- have lawyers been pivotal t- to their success?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we work uh, with, um, you know, uh, with a number of US attorneys and to get to get things right at the beginning is incredibly important and the steps that uh, Joe mentioned are also in my experience vital steps that all entrepreneurs um, Need help with definitely.
0: So, Joe, there's the kind of positive side, which is helping the structure and the building of a company. You know, in terms of employment laws and making sure that the employment regulations are adhered to. And um, can you give us a little bit of an oversight, though, for our for a worldwide audience? Because America, we tend to think, well, America, but uh, you've got you've got federal law, state law. I don't even know if you've got city law. I mean, how, how does it actually work? Can you give us a sort of beginner's guide to the U.S. legal system?
1: Yeah, so. The national level law is referred to as federal law, and it tends not to come into play as much as the state laws do. So usually when analyzing steps that you need to take to start your business, you usually want to start with state law, um, because the state law is really much more pervasive and much more applicable. There are some cities that have laws. New York City is a good example. But they tend to be pretty few and far between. There'll be things like um, special tax rates that you have to pay if your business is located inside that city. Restaurants tend to have city-level laws. But for the most part, uh, businesses can ignore, um, well, I shouldn't say ignore, but usually it's not an issue, any
0: city-level laws. So what, what you're saying, Joe, is that the federal law governs a lot of what high how, how businesses transacted in the United States.
1: Yeah, state law is more impactful and more, more touches. You, you end up dealing with it more. Uh, federal law will impact things like um, certain employment regulations, certainly taxes. Um, you'll have two kinds of taxes you have to pay. They're considered separate sovereigns, so you have to pay your taxes to the IRS, which is the federal tax collection agency, but you also have to pay your taxes to the state. So in the state of Texas, that's the state comptroller.
2: And I think where our clients are typically come into contact with the federal law, or at least some of them, is the whole immigration immigration law. I mean, this is what then our friend Orlando deals with, you know, so immigration law is a federal law is the same throughout the United States. Um, I think um, based on what you said, Joe, it would be really interesting because, um, I mean, Texas is our kind of hub, Austin is our hub, and a lot of our clients start their journey in the United States in Texas and in Austin. So could you uh, point out some of the benefits uh, maybe compared to other states that Texas has as a base uh, for one's business? So a lot of
1: people choose to start businesses in Texas because there is no state-level income tax for individuals. That's true for Florida as well um, and a couple of other states, but that's a big advantage uh, of starting your business in Texas. Another thing that people cite frequently is the lower level of red tape and regulation that Texas has. Texas is very much known for that. Whenever you start any business, let's say you start a dog, uh, dog grooming business, well, first you start the business. In, in other words, you create the LLC, you set up the bookkeeping, you open a bank account, but you then have to comply with whatever training and licensing requirements dog groomers have to comply with or, or whatever the business is. And in Texas, those requirements, those licensing and training and kinds, those kinds of requirements typically are much less onerous than in, than in other states.
0: What about the the sort of city jurisdiction? You know, I hear about city ordinances and that sort of thing. How does how does that fit into all of this?
1: Well, if there are city ordinances that apply, you certainly have to comply with them. But they tend to there tend to not be a whole lot of city ordinances unless you're dealing with something very local, like restaurants.
0: So, the, 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 is there any example you can give us of a, in Austin here of a, of a city ordinance that would impact on a small business?
1: Well, it would depend on the small business. But for example, uh, there is a sound ordinance in Austin that gets litigated a lot because we have a lot of bars and restaurants. It's the live music capital of the world. It's a college town. And the limit, I believe, is 80 decibels. And anytime you open a bar, just expect to get sued by your neighbors and get the police go out there with these, you know, noise meters. And so those are the kinds of very local things that could impact your business
2: happening at the defense table. Miss Street. Oh, Judge Selby. Yes, Miss Street. It's the
0: most terrible thing. Or at any rate, I think it's terrible. Or oh, maybe it isn't.
2: I, 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 well, Lynn, Mr. Mason, would you come and help me with Mrs. Grant? Besides, there's... Well, I, I do think there's something that the court should know.
0: Well, Kitty De Carlo's lying testimony has forced Perry Mason into a daring and desperate plan of action that will mean much-needed delay if successful but certain conviction for his client, as well as possible disbarment and ruin for himself, if a single step fails.
2: I think one of the conversations that has been come quite a lot, and I think that has also been in discussion in Austin, is the, the minimum wage level, which they, I think, discussing on increasing, similar to Seattle, to $15 an hour, right? Um, I mean, typically for our clientele, that wouldn't be, I guess, a massive issue because most of the employees, they would hire you know, software developers, that sort of thing, you know, where they put a higher salary anyway. Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, I've heard some talk about that. I don't think it's passed yet as far as I know, but if
1: it does pass, I, I suppose all the businesses will have to comply with it. If you're moving from Europe... Presumably, if, if that's a big problem for your business, you could just locate just outside the city limits in one of the suburbs, like Round Rock, where we're sitting now. We're a northern suburb of Austin, but there are cities all the way around. Some of them are very nice, and you can move your business there, I suppose, if it's a big problem.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think another thing uh, which is um, quite interesting, so when you're outside, the United States, and you're thinking of setting up a corporation or limited liability company, what is promoted very heavily um, in, uh, in Europe is Delaware as a jurisdiction, not necessarily as a place to you know, set up a presence for a business, but at least to use it uh, as a place to incorporate. Is there really any serious advantage uh, about setting up a corporate uh, a corporation on LLC in Delaware compared to, let's say, Texas?
1: Not really. Delaware law is helpful if you have a very large corporation and you want to implement a poison pill, if you know what that means. It makes it harder for um, people to take over your corporation by buying stock on the public markets. Um, that doesn't apply to small businesses. The Toughness of the corporate veil is also an issue. It's very tough in Delaware, but it's very tough in Texas, too. It's hard to pierce the veil and get through the corporation's back end and into your personal pockets, so to speak. Um, but I don't think it's worth the added complexity uh, uh, for most small businesses to create a Delaware corporation because then you still have to register it to do business here in Texas, and now you're subject to suit lawsuit in Delaware. So if somebody wants to be clever, they can hire a lawyer in Delaware to sue you, and you have to fly up there for all of your hearings. It's just, it's, it's added complexity. I, I would say that Texas corporations and LLCs are fine for most small businesses.
0: Joe, I had a conversation with a a, a, um, it was a South American entrepreneur who was very, very successful setting up uh, his businesses across South America, Europe, uh, and, and beyond. But he said, and I said, well, are you going into the United States? And he said, no way. And he was working in the sort of healthcare department. And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Too litigious." A lot of foreigners, especially Europeans, see American society as extremely litigious. You know, everybody's suing everybody all the time. Is this is this for real? Well, healthcare is an odd
1: industry because it's incredibly heavily regulated. Litigiousness in general, I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, most daily life, uh, most people just living their daily lives and most businesses going through their daily lives. I don't think that American society is really that much more litigious than other societies, from what I can tell, because it's hard and expensive to start a lawsuit and prevail in it. There is one thing that we have which um, makes it a little easier for lawyers to take on cases Uh, on contingency fee. So the one thing that we have is the contingency fee system, and we have the American rule for um, legal fees, which means each side absorbs their own legal fees, as opposed to the British rule, where the winner gets their fees covered by the other side. And I don't know how that works in other European countries, but there is a real possibility of large corporations that have deep pockets if they put out a product that hurts someone there are lawyers that will take that case with no money down and try to go recover a million dollars. It's a controversial thing. I happen to think it's a good thing because it keeps corporations from putting dangerous products out there. Um, but I suppose the, uh, it's in the eye of the beholder.
2: Yes, I mean I, I mean, I have to agree from personal experience, um, I guess some anecdotal evidence of living in the United States, living in Texas uh, for a number of years. I mean, I have never been sued. Um, I know very few people, very few entrepreneurs, small business owners, who have ever been sued. I mean, I guess the only case that I can remember is uh, someone who ran a pizza shop and then his delivery driver had an accident with a company motorbike or something like this. And then they tried a personal injury claim and then I think At the end, they settled, you know, for a thousand dollars, a very small amount. But I think the personal injury um, is mainly where the litigious, you know, where probably the American system is more litigious uh, than other systems. Say, for example, in Germany, because in Germany, they never pay high, you know, high damages. I mean, it would be no point to do that sort of thing.
0: So would it be fair to say, Joe, in your practice and your working experience that um, this kind of malicious, litigious nature is, is rare, a rare thing as it is in, in other countries? In my experience, it's
1: incredibly rare because even in the cases where the lawyer is taking the case on a contingency fee, the lawyer still has to invest his or her own time and money to pay for the all of the experts and all of the discovery and... They don't do that unless they think it's a good case. I I don't think it's that common for bad cases
0: to be brought. Hi, you're listening to Move Your Business to the United States. Just a quick word from our sponsors, Mount Bonnell Advisors. The people there have been advising clients on moving stateside for years. For all your needs, both business and practical, head over to mountbonnell.com to find out more. Thanks for listening. In terms of how it works organizationally for American lawyers, um, does each state have its own kind of bar? You know, is it, is it, is, are you, for example, licensed to practice only in Texas? I'm licensed in New York, New Jersey, and Texas. And yes,
1: each state has their own bar. Any member of any bar of any state can automatically waive into the DC bar, Washington, DC. You have to fill out forms and pay fees. I haven't done that yet. But that is always available. Now, in federal courts, you don't have to be admitted to the particular state. So, for example, if I had a case in Iowa, I could fly there. I would have to apply to that court to become admitted to that particular court, but that's a formality. And I don't have to be a member of the Iowa State Bar. So it's it's a little complicated, but... Essentially, it's a very local thing. Most lawyers, very, very rarely will you find a lawyer that is actively involved in more than one state.
0: In terms of, uh, I mean, the entrepreneurs that uh, Sebastian's dealing with, I mean, they they, they may set up their U.S. headquarters in Austin, but they may be trading across the 50 states. So if somebody in California decides to sue them and they're headquartered in Texas, how does that work practically? So it
1: comes down to whether California has jurisdiction over either the person or the entity that they're trying to sue in California. That in turn comes down to an analysis of contacts, nexus as it's often called. So if you've never been to California and you've never shipped any goods into California and you don't have an office there, you don't have an employees, any employees there, you've got a pretty good case that You can't be sued in California courts. But if you are, in fact, doing business in all 50 states, you have offices in all 50 states, you're shipping products to all 50 states, you're collecting taxes and paying local taxes in all 50 states, then you can be sued anywhere.
0: Joe, law firms, I know they vary in size. Certainly in the UK, you can have huge corporate law firms in the city of London, or you can have virtually one-man operations or one-woman operations, uh, probably more dealing with criminal law, or and some are mixed, they deal a bit of civil, a bit of criminal. How does it work here? Do you have a, like a law firm that deals with civil and criminal and everything, or does it just specialise in one thing? Or you, Do you know what I mean? Or Are you a business lawyer? How does it work? Well,
1: it's very similar to what you described. There are law, large law firms, typically they have large corporate clients, And they refer mostly internally. So, for example, I used to work at uh, big firms in New York. And if I had a client that was uh, coming to me for corporate law, say, issuing another uh, series of stock, and then they somehow got involved in litigation, that referral would go to another partner in my firm, if at all possible. So that's why those large law firms exist. Each partner really is running his or her own little mini business. They're, they're not as monolithic as they seem from the outside.
0: And just just in your own practice, I mean, what, what do you head up in, in, in your firm? Do you have a particular specialism?
1: Yeah, I do small business law estate planning and probate. Those are my
0: specialty areas. So presumably you would deal with a lot of the type of people that Sebastian's talking about, those small entrepreneurs coming either US-based or or coming from abroad setting up in the US. Yes, I've done quite a bit of that. Do you find um, any particular kind of misconceptions about the legal structure here on their part, especially people coming from abroad that you've had to kind of educate or help um, reshape? I've
1: seen two reactions. One is that people are sometimes surprised at how complex it is. It depends where they're coming from. But there are some places where you don't do all of these things. You just start doing business and that's it. You're done. And I've also seen, again, depending on where they're coming from, I've seen people have a more lackadaisical attitude about paying taxes or keeping the books uh, properly. And that does not work. Uh, It's you really need to do things correctly here. or You will get popped by some taxing authority or regulator or um, some other governmental entity.
0: And Joe, do you do a lot of the interface between on behalf of business owners for with with federal or state authorities? I mean, do, do, do you kind of take them through that maze sometimes of bureaucracy or regulation and, or, and act on their behalf? Is that is that a service that you would provide?
1: Well, if they get into actual litigation, I no longer do that, but I've People that I would refer them to, if it is more of an say like an audit from the IRS, I've certainly handled those, um, or from the state comptroller. And the other thing you might be asking about is, you know, can I help? Say, for example, a new business that is a bar or restaurant, navigate all of the bar and restaurant laws in Austin. That's not my area of expertise. So it very much depends on exactly what they're doing, but I've been practicing here long enough that if I don't do it, I know someone who does.
0: Sebastian, does this sound familiar to you from your experience in Texas?
2: Yeah, very, and uh, uh, Joe, you were telling us the other day that you are um, not only an attorney, you're also a CPA, although you said you no longer practice um, as a CPA. How does uh, being a CPA um, help you with dealing with your law firm clients?
1: Well, just being able to really understand from the bottom up, the accounting, the bookkeeping, and just the financials and the economics behind the businesses I've found to be very helpful. Oftentimes, people get frustrated because they're asking their lawyer a question and then they're asking their accountant the same question or a related question. They may be getting two different answers. And so um, I I try to be sensitive to the accounting side when giving legal answers.
2: Yeah, I think it's extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful, especially for the type of clients we are dealing with, you know, because they have to kind of wrap their head around um, not only the legal system, but also the tax system. So for for someone to be able to understand even if later on they have to refer them to a specialist, you know, but to be that entry point and say, well, okay, um, this is, you know, setting kind of them on the right track. Yeah. um, That is that is extremely helpful. What is the most common legal form in the United States,
1: uh, Joseph? Well, in Texas, for small businesses, I would say limited liability companies, or LLCs, are the way to go in most cases. They're very simple to set up. You can actually create them yourself on the Texas Secretary of State's website for a small fee, $100, $150, I think it is. And you don't even really need a lawyer to create the entity, to get its sort of birth certificate. It's called a certificate of formation. You probably need a lawyer after that, though, because especially if you have business partners, you're definitely going to need a company agreement that defines the relationship among the partners and what happens in, in case of the four Ds, death, disability, disenchantment, divorce. So if any of those things happen to any of the partners, um, you need to know how who's going to remain in control and how disputes are going to be settled. So that's a very important document. Even that, you can find forms on the internet, but it's a little it's a little dicey. Um, but to answer your question, I would say it's an LLC. There's still a question though. Once you form the LLC, how do you want it to be taxed for federal purposes? Do you want it to be taxed as a corporation? There's a type of corporation called an S corporation, which has pays no entity level tax. You can choose that, or you can go with the default for LLCs, which is to be taxed as a partnership. They also face no Entity level taxation.
2: I think another common um, issue um, or question that many of our clients have is the whole, um, you know, protection of intellectual property. Um, so, clients who, let's say, have um, already sort of created some sort of software and now want to use that in the United States. So, how does Texas fare up like with uh, intellectual property rights?
1: Well, intellectual property generally is governed at the federal level here. So it goes to the US Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO.gov. And technically, you don't have to file a trademark. Or if you've used a mark in trade first, it's your mark. But it's always recommended to go ahead and do that filing. Same thing with other intellectual property. That is referred to in the US as prosecuting a patent or prosecuting a trademark. That's the, just the process of making that filing and getting that approval back from the US Patent and Trademark Office. I don't do that sort of work. And in fact, you don't even have to be a lawyer to do that sort of work, but there are specialists who do.
2: So, related to this question um, is another question uh, because a lot of companies who deal with intellectual properties are startups who would also take in um, investment, uh, sort of be it VCs or, or, um, or angel um, investors. Do you know um, the Do you know a little bit of the VC and angel investor scene in Austin?
1: Yes, I'm somewhat familiar with it. And if a venture capitalist, especially a sophisticated one, makes an investment in your business, that changes everything because they are going to have their own lawyers, their own forms. They are going to do Delaware corporations because they are planning to hopefully go public one day, and they're going to want it to be a C corporation, which is a regular corporation that is taxed at the entity level, as opposed to the S corporation I mentioned earlier. And the reason they're going to want to do that is because they're going to want to have at least two different classes of stock. They are going to want better stock that has more rights than what they're going to give you as a founder. So for a lot of reasons, um, all bets are off. Everything I've said changes if you have a VC uh, investor.
0: Just quickly on that point, Joe, um, I know you talked about state tax and federal tax on an individual basis. Do companies then have state and federal tax as well? Oh, absolutely. And, And in many cities, a city tax as
1: well. So yes, they do, but only C corporations, well, that shouldn't be that broad. Among the commonly used entities, C corporations actually pay taxes to the federal government. Let's keep it simple. The partnerships and S corporations don't pay any entity level tax to the federal government.
0: But they do to the state?
1: Uh, they do. Uh, in t- it varies state by state, and it's typically a much smaller amount, but Yes.
0: So it's true that in America, it's the only certainties are death and taxes. Yeah,
2: yes, absolutely. And I think one should add that the local tax that they have in Texas, the franchise tax only applies to, you know, I guess larger businesses once they have sales in excess of more than a million. I think it is something like this.
1: Yeah, I forget the exact dollar amount, but even when you past that threshold it's still not a terribly onerous tax
0: just just to sum up really I mean Sebastian refers you to or refers a, a client to you who's a European business owner about to expand into into the United States obviously you would consult with them in a legal capacity and all the rest of it but what would be the kind of key piece of information from the get-go that you would want to communicate to that person
1: well it would depend on how large their business is if they have a large and existing business the first thing that we would need to talk about is transferring all of those contracts, assets, people into a U.S. context, and that can be very complicated, and it's very much a piece-by-piece sort of analysis. If they're a small business, then Mm -hmm. the first thing to talk about is just creating the entity, uh, talking about limited liability, talking about how much money they're going to put in, and talking about the tax ramifications and all of the bookkeeping that it goes behind that to make sure that you can comply.
0: That sounds like pretty good advice. Wouldn't you agree, Sebastian?
2: I totally agree, yeah. Um, so, Joe, how can our listeners find more about you, your practice, and how to contact you? My website
1: is and that's My last name is spelled F as in Frank, U-L-W-I-L-E-R, Fullweiler, and then the word law,
0: L-A-W.com. Joe, thank you very much for taking the time from your busy practice to speak to us. I really appreciate it. It's been a real eye-opener for me, Sebastian, to learn just how complex things are here. And I think, as with Orlando in London and visas, the thing I'm taking away from this is that uh, you really do need a lawyer if you're going to set up a business in the United States. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Oh, yeah, totally. You know, when you plan without a lawyer, you basically, I guess, you plan to fail. So that's never a good idea.
0: Next time on Move Your Business to the United States. An entrepreneurial journey is about the most, one of the most unique things that you could do in life. It has the, the
1: highest highs, can't even express how great they are, and some of the lowest lows. And you can only, to me, reach in to find your way through it if you really believe that in your DNA, this is what I'm supposed to be here on earth doing.
0: You've been listening to Move Your Business to the United States with me, Kevin Turley. A huge thanks to my producer, Emmett Glynn, who produced this podcast for Mount Bunnell Media. To find out more, go to mountbunnell.com. And remember, dream big, dream America.